People always tell me, you should have your money working for you. Because you send your money out there working for you, a lot of times it gets fired. You go back there, what happened? I had my money, it was here, it was working for me. Yeah, I remember your money. We had to let him go. Welcome everybody to episode three of the Super Terrific Happy Hour. My, my, how time flies. These are regular podcasts are becoming a little more regular. Downright regular, exactly. I know, I know. Well, listen, there's so much to talk about always that we might as well talk about it. I mean, who else is going to do that? Right. (laughs) Until we run out of stuff to uh, ramble on about, I guess we just keep at it. I reckon we're I reckon we're good for a few more weeks. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And, and and people I think people don't get enough pomboy in their lives, so we might as well throw a bit more uh, at them. Quite the contrary. I, I think yeah. they need more Williams and a lot less pomboy, but we well, can debate the ratio. <laughs> listen, I, I'd be very happy to go to the mat on that poll. But listen, this week is going to be a little different because you and I have a guest joining us, someone who I am extremely excited to finally meet and get a chance to chat to, thanks to you. Uh, well, actually, it's been my great pleasure to know this gentleman um, basically since I started in the business, uh, which is embarrassingly long ago. But um, I first met our, our guest when I came. I had just come out of college and I was working with Ed Hyman at C.J. Lawrence in the research department. And then when he announced he was starting ISI, he needed a salesperson urgently to cover the major accounts. So it, he handed me a list that included Soros, Steinhardt, Tudor, Moore, <laughs> Fidelity. I mean, it's it was an embarrassment of riches for a 21-year-old who had no idea no what she was doing. Um, so I found myself routinely sat in these meetings, you know, around a desk with Ed and Stan and uh, <laughs> Lewis and uh, whatnot. And I would say, by way of introduction of our guest today, that this gentleman, although not a hedge fund manager, was right up there with those guys. You know, I always felt like when I would meet with him, the way he analyzed the economy and the markets and the way he thought about uh, the investment landscape was very much the same as these great macro thinkers of the time. Um, And he was also just as ballsy, if I could use that phrase, as these hey, guys. It's, it's our podcast. You can use whatever phrase you want. <laughs> say whatever the hell I want. Um, you know, he actually, even though he's running mutual funds and, and separate accounts, he would routinely take his cash positions to levels that infuriated his clients. You know, around <laughs> the dot-com uh, bubble, he refused to, you know, uh, get in with the herd. And he, I think he took his cash positions close to 50% at the time and to great detriment of his business because investors just redeemed like crazy. You know, they didn't, they wanted to be in the stuff. So he really has a giant set of cojones, um, a descriptor that's particularly apt for this gentleman because uh, I'll I'll reveal, I'll pull the curtain. It's Bob Rodriguez. Bob Rodriguez was the- Yes, it is the helmsman of the first Pacific Advisors Funds for 30 some odd years um, and uh, has since retired. But Bob uh, is just a legend in the business and we're so pleased to have him. It's been a great privilege for me to get to know him and looking forward to uh, picking his brain about what's going on out there. Well, for me too, I mean, it's funny. He's he's one of those guys that um, 
I, I haven't had the good fortune to meet, but I, every t- everything I've read of his uh, speaks to exactly what you just you just talked about. Um, you know, his intellect, his, his his sharply analytical brain, and he just seems like a really cool guy. You know, when, when you read interviews with him and stuff, yes. he just seems like a good guy. He's going to so, fit right in with our very casual, super terrific happy hour sort of uh, approach. <laughs> well, you know what? Why don't we, without any further ado, why don't we just welcome him to the show? What do you say? Wonderful. How are you? I'm great. Uh, it's gorgeous out here in Lake Tahoe. Uh, beautiful day. Uh, and at the beginning of the day, I uh, had uh, computer issues. And, <laughs> I'm and sorry to all, make you get on the computer. You're on the computer all the time. Don't. <laughs> uh, uh, mostly, mostly iPad these days. And then we had our security cameras go out and uh, had oh, the electronic God. people up here. So just normal every day. Just a regular day. Well, yeah. Bob, I want to formally introduce you to Grant Williams, my co-host and partner in crime here at the Super Terrific Happy Hour. Grant, as you, I think you uh, may have missed the preamble before I started blabbing, uh, but Grant has been looking forward to meeting you. Um, sadly, we're doing it remotely, but uh, for a, a long time. So uh, a big fan. And I, you know, I've tried to talk him out of it, but... <laughs> <laughs> you need to try a lot harder, Bob. It's, it's, I absolutely. It's a great pleasure. Real pleasure to meet you, and thanks so much for doing this. We we really appreciate it. Well, thank you. It's we live in interesting times, don't we? We most certainly do. And yeah. and I mean, Steph has has uh, run me through your background, and I've read your background. But there'll be people that 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 don't know your background. And when you want to talk about interesting times, <laughs> your background most definitely qualifies. So, I, if you wouldn't mind, I'd love to start with you kind of running people through your career, the kind of broad strokes of it. That'd be wonderful. Well, I entered the investment field in 1971, but prior to that, uh, I was trying to work in 1970 and the first financial debacle of the uh, modern era was when the Penn Central filed bankruptcy and shut everything down in 1970. So I thought, Maybe this is a precursor to things coming, uh, but I had to wait until 73, 74 to uh, get an even better appreciation for the volatility that would occur. At that time, I was a young person, uh, very conservative in views in terms of if you couldn't compound money at 20 or 25 percent a year then you were just basically a piker which tends to sum up kind of like the feelings of what were going on at that time and i had a rude awakening in 1974 uh, and that's when i met a couple of people i met charlie munger in september of 74 at our investment class and i asked him after everybody else i said i'm new to the investment field. If I could do, if I could ask you one question about what would make me a better uh, investment professional, what, what would I, uh, what would I do? What should I look to? And he responded, read history, read history, read history. Now, very uh, sage advice. At the same time, Warren Buffett was being interviewed in the uh, December of 1970. When I will paraphrase, he, paraphrase when he came with one of the greatest all-time quotes in investment, investment uh, history. 
when they asked him, what do you think about the stock market? And this is with the Dow Jones being used at that time, uh, breaking the 600 level, going to 580. He responded, I feel like an oversexed man in a whorehouse. <laughs> and I said, <laughs> I said now, how much better can you get that? How about those for bookends when you're uh, starting your career? Uh. <laughs> and since that time, it's been... Uh, interesting. I've managed bonds and stocks simultaneously. I worked on the sa first savings and loan bailout in the country when we were starting to look at it, 1983, when I was at Kaufman and Broad, uh, Biscayne Federal. We worked to uh, turn around an insurance company, and when we shifted our portfolios to equities uh, heavily in 1982, because uh, rates were so high and the average insurance company would be trading at about 50% of their book value, which means they were effectively insolvent. Uh, the only way we thought we could get to parity without a 700, 800 basis point rally in the bond market was utilizing stocks. So we shipped equities, uh, our assets into equities. And I always loved AM Best when they sent us our review we figured we were going to be challenged on the uh, credit rating, but they sent us the view and uh, they said we were uh, capricious risk takers. And then we fast forward to 1999 with uh, the markets hitting all time highs and the dot com and what is now the new accepted way of investing for these companies. Oh, you should expand your ownership in the stocks. So with stocks below book, 6% yields were capricious risk takers. But in 1999, with the NASDAQ trading at over 100 times earnings and the NASDAQ 100 at 150 times, now that's prudent. And that kind of covers a long period. And, and the, final, oh, the final one would be 07, prior to the crash. Uh, and as Stephanie knows, she started up at, shall we say, a challenging time. Right. <laughs> and uh, loved it in the period of uh, the spring of uh, 2007 when I put forth a piece called Absence of Fear that laid out the financial crisis. Uh, ben Bernanke was saying that subprime, there would be no contagion. And at the uh, Chartered Financial Analyst Society in Chicago, where I gave a keynote at that time, I said, uh, uh, Ben Bernanke uh, couldn't find his way out of a paper bag with both ends open. I said, he doesn't realize that the canary in the credit coal mine is subprime and it just croaked. But what does uh, Ben do? He goes out and gets himself another canary. He had no idea. And he didn't even know that there was a speculative bubble in housing because you can read the Fed minutes and there was no housing bubble. So I, it's been an interesting period. And I stepped down at the end of 09 uh, after a nearly 40-year run of in the investment field and the equity funds did pretty well and the bond funds did pretty well and uh now i've been sure uh retarded i mean retired uh since 16 uh, since the end of 16 and uh
have had fun watching all of the festivities so far. Do you so think, kind of Bob, the, the obvious question is, do you think that you could run money the way you did today? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, I learned a long time ago, uh, I fought with clients and I insulted them regularly. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> and, uh, to raise liquidity and bet my business on more than one occasion. Yeah. And in each case, I would take upwards of a 50% contraction in my assets under management. Uh, I thought that after 07, 09, they would have learned something. I took a sabbatical in 2010 after I stepped down from active management and came back in 11, and I was shocked to see that nothing was learned. They were going back to their old-time ways, and it accelerated throughout the uh, decade. Uh, just absolute gross insanity. And for the last decade, I've described this equity market as dysfunctional, delusional, and manipulated, all driven by the high priest in the Eccles building. Mm -hmm. And it's just unconscionable what these people have been doing. Yeah, you know, Bob, you, you also, you, you talked about um, the PCR absence of fear in, in early 2007. You also wrote a piece back then called Crossing the Rubicon around the same time, I think, maybe a little, a little later. And in that, and people listening to this should, should look that up. You'll find it if you Google it, you know, you'll find that piece. And it's, it's a terrific read still to this day. Um, and in that, you talked about the fact that there was no way of going back once they'd taken the steps they did back at that time. When you look at how far across the Rubicon we've gone, did, did you ever in your wildest dreams picture we'd be here? Uh, I think in some type of degree, potentially, but it, uh, to get there required uh, uh, some elements to, to go along and pass. So for example, uh, in a 11, I did an interview with Fortune magazine, and I talked about that if we did not get our economic uh, financial house in order by the end of 13, post-2017, we would face a crisis of equal or greater magnitude than that which we went through in 07, 09. Uh, I was hopeful. I worked with uh, former Controller General of the United States, uh, David M. Walker, uh, and a group of us, and we shut that down at the end of 13 as an abject unmitigated failure, which then raised serious uh, concerns in my mind. And then when I saw the pork-filled omnibus bill of 17 and the uh, tax cut of 17, I thought that would postpone things a little bit, but it was putting us into even greater uh, risk orbit. And last year, uh, with the Fed doing their 180, confirming uh, you were in the Roach Motel, you can check in, you can check out, but you can't leave. Uh, and I said, we, uh, it was just dangerous. And then on September 9th, when I did an interview uh, saying the Fed is clueless, I was talking last year that the Fed balance sheet would likely grow by at least four to six trillion in the next crisis. And they were still trying to bring it down at that time. So a Four to six trillion number was a big number. Uh, I was happy to see that some other uh, reasonably sane people 
like ourselves uh, included uh, Ed Doubleline. Uh, and he came out in a private meeting uh, talking about $5 trillion. And so there were a couple of us thinking in the same way, all independent of one another, coming to similar points of view. And, but the magnitude of what has transpired in the last eight weeks is beyond all uh, recognition. There are, as I told uh, Stephanie, uh, there are no R's or D's in Washington today. Uh, there are uh, G's and U's. Government versus us. us. <laughs> the, the R's and D's are flying in formation, and they are pigs above Washington, and they are f- coming in for a landing to the pork trough. This is open <laughs> season to have a porkathon, and it's just absolutely disgusting to see some of the things that are going on. And uh, no, I could not have envisioned this magnitude this quickly, but I thought that when the crisis hit, it would be of such a uh, size that we had never seen before that almost anything could be possible. I know Stephanie was also very much thinking this way and the concerns, and she'd write her missives, and oh my God, the people would say, not again, not again. again." (laughs) (laughs) And uh, she's one of the few uh, out there that was uh, warning of this. David Rosenberg out there uh, was looking at this, and another gentleman, another economist who's done a wonderful job, and all of this has been Lacey Hunt. So uh, there are some of us around who saw this, but it did not occur to them in Washington. Yeah. Well, Grant and I have also, you know, Grant's included in that uh, in terms of sending missives that people didn't want to hear the same bad news all over, right? I mean, I think we can all empathize with that feeling of no one wanted to talk to any of us, probably. Mm -hmm. But, uh, but, but Bob, sorry, go ahead, Grant. Uh, Bob, when you talked about the next crisis would be bigger than we could possibly imagine, is this it? Because a lot of people will argue that the, the, the COVID is the cause. I would argue it's just an accelerant. But the way the market's behaving certainly tends to suggest that, they, that, that the investors on the street now, whether they're algos or retail or whoever the hell's buying this stuff, doesn't believe this is it. They believe this is one last buy the dip opportunity. Uh, what another would you say to that? Another <laughs> buy the dip. Uh, they they're drinking uh, the delusional pill. I mean, taking the delusional pill in vast quantities. Is this the last one? Never underestimate the magnitude by which government can totally distort a system. I mean. I can run the numbers. Uh, if we take first quarter GDP, what's likely to be in the second quarter, you're going to get a trough level on nominal GDP of somewhere in the neighborhood of 19 to $20 trillion. So I'll be optimistic and assume we trough at $20 trillion, not 19 
out of the last crisis, I assume we would have an, a uh, real GDP growth of approximately 2%. Well, for the uh, period June 30th of 09 to uh, September 30th of 19, real GDP averaged about 2.2, 2.25%. That was the worst recovery since the Depression. Nowhere was that in the Fed thinking. This time around, I think you have to cut that number in half. Mm -hmm. So optimistically, I think uh, a real GDP growth number going forward is 1% or less. And then if I add on, say, uh, inflation of just, say, 1%, because we're going to go through a deflationary period of some type here, 2%, then that in 10 years, that gets us back to approximately 24 trillion, maybe a little bit more. And at the same time, I'm estimating that uh, total debt in the country will be somewhere in the neighborhood of 45 to 50 trillion. So by the end of this decade, we are going to be pressing 200% debt to GDP. Will that be the crisis? Who knows? Uh, but obviously, what has been unleashed here cannot be put back into the bottle. Mm. And, uh, and we still even haven't even... Uh, gone through the second, third, and fourth iterations of both the economy and governmental response. You know, at least another trillion, two trillion uh, dollars coming down the road, maybe more this year, next year when they find out the economy isn't recovering, like uh, the five or percent real GDP number that the Fed has talked about. Boy, are they uh, drinking some happy time juice. <laughs> Uh, then probably in second or third quarter next year, they'll be talking about a tax cut. And then what do you do in 22 when, you know, it, it's just all they know is to do more. And so uh, for the crisis, is this it? I'm fearful that when the markets finally realize that the V is not to occur and everybody has their favorite le letter Alarian uh, uh, is looking at uh, W's and all I said a small V initially when everybody was talking the V recovery the capital V I said I'm using a lowercase V and I started thinking it would maybe could it be the Nike swoosh or maybe the square root sign is more appropriate and so I think probably the latter is more appropriate but that's not in the stock market today. And when you start to factor that in, and maybe deflation not being just one year, but could be two or three years, if the deflation occurs for two or three years, then I would think the stock market from present levels has got at least another 50% on the downside. Yeah. So uh, we're still in the early uh, period of this. What, what do you think triggers that 50%? down move because you describe an environment where we're going to continue to see budget deficits just get larger and larger. And obviously the Fed's going to have to buy that issuance, right, to keep yeah. rates down. So, you know, I, you look at the markets today and the attitude is I'm just going to buy what the Fed's buying as long as they're in there manipulating the market. You know, as Grant said, you just buy the dip and, and why do they care? whether the economy is V-shaped or U-shaped or Nike swoosh? Well, I would say I would, I would uh, change the term. And instead of calling it the stock market, 
I would call it the casino. Right. <laughs> and we are all now around the crap table. And uh, people on the crap table can either bet with the shooter that's going long the stock market, or they can bet against the shooter that don't pass. And obviously people who uh, short on the, the crap table are not very popular people. And so everybody likes to bet with the shooter. So all the bets are out on the table and the croupier has got it and the dice are rolling. And as long as the numbers keep coming up, guess what? The voices get louder and louder and the excitement gets there. Then all of a sudden without notice, seven comes and the shooter sevens out and all the bets are taken away. I don't know what's going to uh, take that 50%, but when you are in a casino, you realize that bad things can happen very quickly. And just like here back in February and early March, in two weeks, you wiped out seven years of yeah. stock market returns on the S&P, 10 years to 12 years on the uh, smaller cap stocks, and then you wiped out 17 to 20 years on the European stocks in two weeks. Yeah. Doesn't that make that so much more confounding that people were so ready to come back to the craps table? <laughs> yeah, but other people have not been. I uh, thought it was interesting that... Uh, 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 Warren Buffett has yeah. responded differently. Mm -hmm. And uh, my friend Bill Mason put a, a little piece together, uh, 2008 and now, Buffett then, Buffett now, about how he responded. And I found it fascinating because uh, in October of 08, I had just come back from uh, overseas. Uh, I was in Italy when... Uh, servitorship took place and I got out my trusty uh, Blackberry with a broken track wheel and committed uh, to write emails like crazy and I got back and in the first week of October I told my uh, colleagues I said get ready uh, we're gonna commit capital get get your list together and in a period of uh, three months we committed more capital in the shortest period of time at any point in time in the history of the firm. Hmm. It was wonderful. This time around, I wouldn't because the valuations are not there. Uh, the uh, ability to determine what the forward growth uh, with any kind of competence is not there. The uh, undermining, extreme undermining of uh, 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 fiscal rectitude. It's this is far different than 2008-9. I guess 08-09 could have been just, shall we say, the orchestra practicing, getting warmed up for the concert, and now the concert is beginning. Uh, maybe it's Mozart's Requiem. <laughs> <laughs> 
You know, the other thing that's different that happened in that span, in that decade in between, is this mushrooming of assets that are passively managed to the point that, you know, even the, the reality on the ground is really irrelevant as long as you've got algorithms and, you know, a lot of this trading just going on automatically and people have that illusion of liquidity and they buy, 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 and it feeds on itself. I, I mean, it seems like that is a fairly large contributor to the levels to which valuations have uh, been inflated. Do you, do you think about that as a factor or do you think that that's just me well, rationalizing? I thought, no, I thought about it as a factor, both what was helping to drive things on the upside, but also what could drive things on the downside. And in the prior to the 08, 09 uh, contraction, uh, those types of funds uh, passively managed would have been around oh, 9 to 11 or 12% of the market. Prior to this one, I saw estimates anywhere from 35 to almost 50% on it. And so that when the downswing hits, uh, they don't have cash. They have to sell. So I thought that they could be a destabilizing force in the marketplace, but uh, the Fed did operate and react in very, very quick, uh, uh, in a very quick way, faster than I would normally have expected. I think probably most of us have been surprised by the magnitude, uh, the swiftness that the Fed has responded. And so that helped to, shall we say, truncate some of this uh, possibly. I don't know. You think that way? Um, I mean, I think it is clearly a contributing factor. And I think you're, I, I share your concerns that on the downside, who knows what happens? You know, the Fed came in with the supports of the, the bond ETFs, which is where the liquidity issue really lies. Yes. Um, so we'll see. But, you know, you know me, Bob. In my heart, I can't believe that you can ever repeal the fundamentals forever. You know, I think I totally agree with you on that. I just, I get asked the question all the time, so it's unfair of me. I turned it on you to try to get a, an answer. <laughs> I'm just looking at where you take this down and uh, the earnings down of the stock market. The consensus now has gone from approximately $180 on the S&P, 185, to somewhere in the 125, 130 range. I don't know if that's right. Uh, I think so many businesses are going to have to restructure how they're doing. I mean, I'm out here, uh, and we have a large element in the restaurant, casino, uh, business area of Lake Tahoe and Northern Nevada. There is no restaurant that can operate at 50% of capacity and survive. It's impossible. And so I've suggested that uh, restaurant uh, management add another line or an expense item that you could, uh, as the customer, fill in a COVID-19 contribution because we want the restaurants to survive. I know I've been doing that with, shall we say, uh, tips, uh, raising those for the people that are working as a way of helping to uh, uh, get through this. But that is only a 
short-term, um, only a short-term method, but you start looking at how businesses are going to have to uh, reconfigure themselves, even if they get a virus, uh, I mean, a vaccine for this. Are you telling me that there's not another one around the corner? Mm. I mean, this is probably going to have a fundamental change in how businesses are put together, how they congregate, uh, the supply chain management function. I can't tell you before I retired, I kept saying to management, you have just in time management. Do you also have, or JIT, do you also have JIC? And they would look at me with this <laughs> curious expression. Uh, I know JIT. Right. What's JIC? Just in case. Yeah. It's called the margin of safety. How do you get through this when your supply chains get disrupted? And they just looked like deer in the headlights. <laughs> and, you know, and why should you be surprised when, as you know, they the last four or five years, they've committed 100% of cash flow to stock buybacks. Now you go forward, if you use uh, the elements of how you drive an account economy, which is land, labor, and capital, to get to the productivity function. Well, obviously, uh, the labor equation is changing rather uh, considerably. Uh, the capital function, it has been abused unmercifully in the last decade and particularly in the last five years. So if I look at the uh, drivers, capital investment and uh, uh, productivity, two out of the three have really been uh, affected. And it's not a short-term one. Thus, I cannot imagine that productivity numbers are going to look very good over the next few years. Mm -hmm. And that was the conclusion I came to back in 2009 when I suggested that we would face productivity and capital spending cycle in the recovery since the Depression, which is in fact what occurred. And uh, Stephanie was saying exactly the same thing, and a few others. So this is worse. So why shouldn't we expect something worse than that? Therefore, I have to assume that the earnings growth numbers, the trough numbers, all of those are optimistic. And the markets have not adjusted to that. So they're discounting a recovery from in 2021, 22, 23. Actually, they're going out to 22 and 23 in order to come up with some idea about where earnings should be to justify present stock price levels. But the wild card here is that, oh, if rates are going to be at zero, who knows, maybe they go negative. Of course, that probably would take some uh, legal changes. Uh, but let's say they go zero. Well, we might as well own stocks because that gives us a call on the upside. That's not the greatest reason to buy stocks. That's more of a speculative tendency rather than an investment uh, decision. Mm -hmm. Bob, let, let me ask you, there was a time where 
people who actually took the time to think the way you do, think forward, think about economic activity and the stock market, you, you seem like such an outlier now. And there was a time when you weren't. And when you talk about Warren Buffett, you know, the, the guy who started off your career as an oversex man in a whorehouse and now <laughs> at the annual shareholder meeting, stripped of the crowd, stripped of the fans, just a, a guy behind a microphone looked like what he is, which is an 88-year-old man in a whorehouse. And so <laughs> no one seems to be paying attention to the fact that Buffett, not only was he not putting his hand in his pocket, he's got $140 billion of cash on the balance sheet, but he was actively talking about letting some of their businesses fail and go under and restructure. Uh, no one's listening to what are you saying this time because the message isn't good. People don't listen to people like you. They don't listen to people like Stephanie. What does it take, do you think, for people to start understanding the reality we're in, where an economy is perhaps going to be cut in half in a quarter and, and down 6% a year? That means something. I would say there'll come a time when the Fed does something and it doesn't get the reaction it expects. The emperor has no clothes. The grand wizard is an 88-year-old man behind the curtain. <laughs> <laughs> and so we haven't, we haven't pulled back the curtain of the grand wizard uh, yet or the 12 high priests who are looking at economic entrails. Uh, we may still have to go through more of that, but as so long as you have managers willing to, shall we say, continue to keep money on the crap table for the role of the because if they don't, they cannot be at the crap table. You cannot stand there at the crap table and occupy a spot. You will be moved out because they need somebody else to order drinks and lose money. <laughs> so what do the managers have to do? They have to play the game. And this goes up and down the, the line. Better to fail with the crap than to try and succeed away from the crowd. Uh, it's uh, Keynes had it right about that, uh, about trying to maintain one's sanity when everybody else is losing theirs. So I think uh, a whole generation or two are going to have to be reintroduced to reality. You have probably close to 40 to 50 percent percent of the money managers in the industry today that have never seen a, a normal yield curve. They've only seen a manipulated yield curve. Um, they are learning to invest in an alternative universe. I don't believe that universe is sustainable, and which means they will be taken out. Mm -hmm. uh, I fear for many of them, but uh, you try these things and you're the doddering old fool uh we neanderthals uh are still hanging around uh i can look at my personal portfolio and i haven't lost a dime i've made money uh you know it's just i don't know what you can do to educate uh you go to a graduate school 
and you go to a graduate school and uh, I asked this a few years ago, say, well, uh, we're in finance and we're going to do the evaluation of a company, discounted cash flow and all. And I said, oh, by the way, if I'm in Europe right now, my, uh, uh, my uh, interest rate is now zero. How do I do a discounted cash flow with that? Let alone if I go to negative, it totally blows up the capital asset pricing model. I said, how are you people handling that? The room was quiet. I think you're into a new environment. And once you go there and you start investing that way, you are investing without, uh, without moorings, without uh, elements that can say you're getting too far one way or the other way. You have no side rails. It's Do you dangerous. think that uh, the next downturn brings back active management? Uh, well, active management really didn't uh, uh, perform that well in this downturn. Mm -hmm. That's true. I mean, if I looked at uh, active managers, either in pension funds or mutual funds, where were their cash levels? Well, they're all quasi-index managers anyway, right? They yeah, but their cash levels, either in the mutual fund industry or in the pension area, were at uh, near or at record lows. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, uh, I had this conversation with a, uh, a growth stock uh, manager back in 2000. I said, when the markets were at over 100 times earnings with the, some of the growth names at 150 times earnings, and you blew it. If you can't recognize that magnitude of excess, when will you? Right. <laughs> yeah, it, it's amazing. Um, yeah. So, you, know, but you mentioned the, the, the pension funds there, um, and Steph's written a lot about the pension industry and, and the kind of trouble it's in. And that, that seems to me potentially to be the biggest problem that's being ignored. Um, and I guess because you can ignore it because it seems like it's, it's out in the future. When you look at the, the pension industry, what do you think about that? The, the level of underfunding, the, the potential for disaster, how, how real is it? It's very real. Uh, as you know, when you take the, you know, uh, uh, their liabilities, you take that uh, rate down, not from six and a half, you take that down to four, yeah. three, or two, you explode the liability side, while at the same time, you depress the return side. Uh, as an example, I was managing, I can disclose it now because I don't manage money and oh, a long time relationship gone. It was the state of Pennsylvania teachers retirement system. And it was 2003. And I'm in there and there's about 30, 35 people in there. And consultant just got off and he opined that uh, the assumed rate of return on the portfolio at uh, 9.5% was reasonable and prudent. And I'm sitting there, I'm following him up and I have a presentation. I take my presentation and I throw it over and throw it into the trash can. <laughs> 
<laughs> and I, I said, Riesel and Prude. I started asking this. I said, I want to ask you people a few questions. One, now be honest with me. How many of you have ever heard of Warren Buffett? And all the hands go up. Two, how many people here believe that Warren Buffett is the all-time greatest investor in the history of uh, the land? All the hands go up. Number three, uh, how many uh, know uh, the company Berkshire Hathaway? And some of the hands don't go up. And I said, for those hands that don't go up, that's Warren Buffett's company. <laughs> Number four on the hit parade. Uh, how many of you know, does Berkshire Hathaway have a pension plan? And that's when the people really start, the hands go down. They're not sure, yeah, going up and down. I said, for those here, yes, they do. Ask question, what is the assumed rate of return on the Berkshire Hathaway pension plan? No hands go up. I said, their assumed rate of return is 6.5%. This is in the, and I take out the annual report that I just picked up that had just been released for 2002 at a six and a half percent. And I said, isn't that interesting? We had a consultant here who opined that the reasonable and prudent return number on this pension is nine and a half percent, which is almost 50 percent higher than the greatest investor's return on his own pension plan. <laughs> now, does that seem reasonable and prudent? And then I said, now I will go on record here at that meeting there is one manager here who will make those returns and you're looking at him i said that's not ego it's just i've read my returns five years in the future <laughs> as it turned out they fired virtually everyone the returns never came close to it they went from 120 percent funding ratio at a low point that I looked at, they were down to 44%. Wow. And uh, uh, so with today's pension plans, there isn't a way for them to get out of it. They, they either have to uh, cut benefits, they either have to up the uh, ante uh, from uh, contributors there, they have to do a combination of those, but to bet that the stock market is going to bail them out of this or bonds is absolutely totally foolish. So we're looking at trillions, I don't know the number, two trillion, three trillion, four trillion of underfunding. I think prior to this crash, the typical pension plan would have been about 75%, 70% funded. My guess right now, when you start to adjust for the prospective uh, returns going forward and the increased liability number that they're going to have to use, that number goes from 70, 75 to probably somewhere into the 50s. Yeah. Devastating. Yeah, yeah. well, Steph, I know you, you follow the, the Mercer stuff religiously i mean that, yes. the data has been terrible for i mean you've been banging that drum for what three four five years now I mean, it seems yeah again 
a story, like you said, that people just dismiss because it seems like it's so abstract and it's so far down the road and we'll figure out how to deal with it at some point. But the interesting thing about the corporate sector pension issue, as opposed to the state and local governments, is that the corporate sector has basically not been worried about its pension. It's been using all its cash to buy back stock. Yeah. So if they actually do have to you know, address this issue, Bob, then uh, the buyback bonanza ends. I mean, maybe that's the thing. Do you think that's the, the thing that finally gets the stock well, market to... Let's, uh, let's be realistic. Uh, a lot of the corporations got on to the uh, defined contribution uh, path uh, many years ago. So the pension liability issue for uh, corporations is considerably smaller than it is for public uh, pension plans, state yeah. and municipal. So there, that's, that's there. But yeah. yes, I mean, taking down loans or these things with the Fed, uh, yes, the stock buyback boom is uh, actively over. Uh, unless you can raise money really quickly, like in the last two weeks, and now you run out and then you start buying back the stock. And then you say, see, we can still play this game continuing. But uh, yeah, the levers to pull of what drove the market for the last five years are vastly diminished. Uh, do, you do actually, get, su I'm sorry. Go ahead, Steph. You, you suggested that um, the regulators that they might actually outlaw buybacks at some point. You had you had mentioned that in one of your recent interviews. I think that maybe they would actually say that's verboten. Uh, I assume you meant the folks who are on the receiving end of all this funny yeah. money. <laughs> I don't see how you provide capital from the public purse and do not have strings attached. And so if you're, you can't buy it back. I mean, how does that look that you take down money from the government that's supposed to uh, help your business, uh, keep your employees, and instead you buy back your stock? I mean, talk about if you wanna get uh, the political establishment on top of you, and that's in a semi-friendly regime, under the present administration. You get into the next regime, and if for some reason uh, uh, we have a Biden administration, and obviously uh, his vice presidential candidate will probably have to be uh, somewhat uh, more sensitive to the far left wing of the party, you get that, God help us if it was Elizabeth Warren, um, if we got that, there is no way that you could have a public purse and have buybacks. So uh, I don't see, and oh, by the way, I would argue that if you're going to be bailed out by the federal government, uh, first of all, stock options cannot be repriced mm -hmm. for management. Uh, if you decide you're going to leave the company, uh, and you have stock uh, options that are still at a profit, um, maybe those should be contributed too, because you were there that created the mess. So why should you be able to be running off with a parachute and stock options where you, as a CEO, created the mess and doing that? So I could go on down the line of several of these things. Oh, by the way, those were things I recommended in 2008. 
Right. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, as an arch conservative, from a standpoint of uh, finances and fiscal policy, I think corporate America has abused these things unmercifully. And we are in this distorted dystopia of crony capitalism, and it plays to the far left fringes of the political uh, establishment, unfortunately. Bob, let, let me ask you: Can you can you see the um, the Fed buying equities? Because it seemed like such a wild idea until about a week ago. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and suddenly it, it feels as though. Powell actually almost explicitly said that's what they were going to do when he talked about we've got plenty of ammunition left, plenty more things we can do. Do you think it's going to well, happen? Well, uh, they can't do it right now for the yeah. simple reason uh, they're, uh, uh, they don't have the uh, regulatory authority. But, I mean, you do have a template right now that has been set up for the purchasing of uh, below investment grade corporate debt through a special purpose vehicle uh, in conjunction with the Treasury, while the Treasury will take the first hits. So therefore, uh, the Fed can claim they're really investing in a government-sponsored uh, entity, and that gets you around some of these limitations. Mm -hmm. Whether that uh, will stand a test, if it were ever challenged in court, I don't know. But that template could potentially be used uh, for equities. Uh, I think that's a, a much farther piece uh, to go. Uh, before you could get to equities, I think you would have to be doing other things out of the, uh, on the fiscal side before you would uh, get there. But uh, nothing would surprise me. Unfortunately, uh, you can say his name better than I can. Uh, Stephanie, uh, I can never say uh, Coachella. Uh, oh, co co oh my God! Coachella Cota. Yeah, right. Coachella Cota. That's the fella. We haven't been drinking, folks. We haven't been drinking. But anyway, uh, he was just speaking uh, about a week and a half ago about negative interest rates and how great and what they can do. And I said, "What planet does this guy live on?" Yeah, yeah. And he said, "Well." Uh, about Japan and Europe. You know, they've tried this, and it has been an abject, unmitigated failure for stimulating the economies. Lacey Hunt is absolutely yeah. correct yeah. that it leads to zombie companies that misallocates capital, that lowers the vibrancy of an economy. Uh, you know, we could take something from nature. Nature has this Darwinian element of, you know, culling the herd of the weak, weakest ones and improving the bloodline of the herd. What are we doing? Exactly the opposite yeah. mm -hmm. in, uh, in financial governmental uh, policy. Buffett could be used as an example. Uh, the one company, and I asked people this at that same meeting, I said, uh, do you know where Berkshire Hathaway came from? And most of the people didn't know. I said, well, when he closed his hedge fund, his foot got stuck in the door, and the, the and the door jam door was had a uh, a title on the door, and it said Berkshire Hathaway. It was uh, the textile manufacturing, and he just said, "I will keep you open 
so long as you do not cost me money. But if you cost me money, I will close you down. And he did. Well, if in this environment today, you would allocate more capital to the Berkshire Hathaway textile unit, because we have to think about those 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 uh, uh, people that will lose their jobs. But then you take a look at Berkshire Hathaway of what that company has done for tens of thousands of people directly and indirectly through pension plans and all the millionaires and billionaires that have been created out of this. I would say that his Darwinian approach was totally appropriate. Yeah. But to do that today is exactly, uh, shall we say, non-PC. Yeah, anathema. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about actually having a cycle, an economic cycle, which the Fed has been working so hard to repeal for as long as you and I have known each other, for sure. The worst appointment could have been done was the replacement of Paul Volcker by Alan Greenspan. Uh, I met Alan Greenspan when I was a youngster at 23. And I was at Transamerica. Mm -hmm. And I was took on the job of who are we going to hire for our uh, econometric forecasting unit and consulting firm. So I interviewed some, and I had Townsend Greenspan, Alan Greenspan in my in our offices there and looked at that. And after the meeting was over, I said, they're no different than anybody else. There's nothing special here. And that was 1973. Wow. And so uh, I just, uh, I think about uh, Paul Volcker, about how, how difficult it was for him, and that he was hated by both sides the aisle, and even Ronald Reagan had problems with him uh, doing that. And then I think of the Austrian economist Kurt Rickabacher that I subscribed to for years, who uh, was so helpful to me. And at his retirement party in 1982 or thereabouts from Dresdner Bank, the, all the central bankers were there. And the keynote speaker was Paul Volcker. And he said, you know, makes us stand on our tiptoes at the Fed to prove that he is wrong. Hmm. I thought that was an astounding uh, recognition. And yeah. uh, Kurt identified the housing bubble in one. He says the next crisis will come emanate from housing. That was in September of 2001. Uh, he, he was so right and all. Those people are long gone in most cases, and Alan Greenspan set in motion something that has had the progeny has continued and has taken it to ultimate extreme excess. Well, let me ask you, let me ask you another question. You, you mentioned the Darwinian and natural elements, uh, and I have to ask you about uh, another element, because I thought you were going down this road when you started that conversation, and, that, and that's gold, which is another element that, that kind of sits in the middle, impassively, kind of judging all this stuff and, and making some of it look ridiculous. Um, what are your thoughts on gold, both in general and, and with what's going on today? Well, you know, to begin with, I know something a little bit about the gold market because my father was a jeweler. 
And uh, my bedroom had at the foot of my bed a pantograph machine for engraving. I did my first engraving when I was five, and my mother was terrified that I would stab myself with the engraving. <laughs> I didn't stab myself with the engraving tool, but I almost cut my thumb off with the power saw. But, but who's can? <laughs> but anyway. Uh, yeah, uh, gold is interesting. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of emotion uh, surrounding it. Uh, I have never really subscribed to gold because I could find companies that would generate vastly superior returns on capital uh, than I could in this uh, moribund asset. It's when the uh, financial systems get so totally distorted that you uh, have manipulated uh, the environment in such a way that your thinking then has to start to change. Mine started to adjust to this in 2013 after we shut down uh, Comeback America. I pulled in it a little bit, concluded that I was too early, and I ended up going in another direction in a collectible area that has been far superior over the last 150 years, and that, that is in numismatics, or coins. Uh, but coming into this period here, uh, I was getting very much interested in the metal last year, and when I, with what I saw transpire in February and March, I started acquiring uh, a gold position uh, relatively aggressively at that moment in time. Uh, we have look at the fundamentals and it, when in analyzing this I looked at gold uh, production from 1800 to 1914 and prices. Uh, you, uh, the price of gold was unchanged for 114 years other than for the Civil War. They had about 35 years, 40 years of deflation. And then World War I hit, and then we changed things. Uh, I looked at demand and supply. Well, right now, we're looking at uh, the contraction in population growth. Uh, half a percent here in this country and around. So we're look, going into an interesting dynamic. At the same time, gold production has, is collapsing. And uh, so the relationship of demand to supply in terms of production and all is probably one of the best in the best combination in probably the last 80 years. And so that adds something to it. But I think gold uh, now is, uh, I wrote a piece to my colleagues and to my friends uh, uh, about three days ago and said, uh, the fiat monetary is in its death throes. Uh, you cannot continue the way we're going. And I said, you might as well prepare to my nephew, who's in his early 40s. I said, you have to worry about yourself and your children. Uh, I may not see the collapse of the fiat money system at 72, but maybe I will. Uh, but I'm, I said, prepare for alternatives. Uh, so I think gold and those kinds of things uh, will provide a hedge. What you haven't asked me about would be crypto, cryptocurrency. And uh, if I think about something that's easier to analyze, uh, 
If I look at an array of uh, op options, such as on the vertical axis, I'll have the height of uh, 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 what the demand function might be. And I'll place a uh, goal. To the right of that, there could be a competing one called silver. To the right of that could be platinum. But if I look at the height of those uh, 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 silos, gold is very large compared to silver and platinum. And after that, you're hard pressed to figure out what you're going to buy in those. Now, if I do the same thing on crypto, and the first one I come up to is Bitcoin. And then it, it's supply constraint for Bitcoin. There's only so many of them. Now I go to the right and I go to Ethereum. And then I go to the right, I go to another one. And when I, you start to think about it, what is the constraint on the horizontal axis on cryptocurrencies when you're dealing with zeros and ones in a computer? They're infinite. That's different from the metallic. So I don't think the people and, and all have really, uh, they think in terms of silos, the, the vertical, but I don't think they've really uh, answered the question about the challenge of the uh, horizontal. And gold, therefore, is an easier way to ascertain and have limits on and thereby create a uh, a better store of value until governments outlaw it. So Bob, can you give us a breakdown of your current personal asset allocation, just silos generally, how much of your, uh, you know, your uh, assets are in gold versus your numismatics? I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that. Yeah. And yeah. any exposure to equities or bonds? Uh, equities, I'm at, I'll take the easy one. I'm at, <laughs> uh, I'm at 11 basis points. Just <laughs> uh, a little I'm, skin in the game there, still, right? <laughs> well, I'm I'm supportive of one equity manager. I uh, I said, and as I told him, I said, "Yo, we're we're in Rome, and we're on the galley, and you're chained to the oars." <laughs> All I can say is row well and <laughs> But anyway, uh, so it's, it's effectively zero. Um, I, uh, liquidity right now, uh, which is uh, treasury bonds and uh, uh, an allocation of my capital to uh, my former bond fund, FPA New Income, that's a plug. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, uh, uh, those things represent about 60, 65% of my assets. Uh, so about uh, 35 to 40% of my assets are in hard assets being uh, uh, fully paid for. Everything's fully paid for, whether it's real estate, whether it's uh, numismatics or uh Gold. Gold is only a relatively new addition. So for me, going from zero to three percent in a period of approximately six days uh, was a a, uh, an, a an aggressive move. Now, what I'm looking at is I'm looking at various periods of uh, pullbacks to see uh, what is unfolding, and I could see myself with allocations of 10 
20, maybe even 30% to it. Uh, I went the route of numismatics because uh, they are rarer. There's a collectible element there. Uh, most importantly, they are transportable where you can't do that uh, with gold. Try and move uh, five or $10 million of gold. Uh, if you get nervous, you can't. Um, and uh, transporting these things internationally is a lot easier and diversifying them. So I learned that uh, a long uh, time ago. Had my uh, family thought the way I'm thinking, then I wouldn't have started from ground zero. Uh, we had Spanish land grants in Mexico. Uh, we were running among the largest cattle herds in North America. Uh, we were a financer, funder, supporter of Pancho Villa and was at my grandfather's home. And in 1916, uh, the revolution took a bad turn and my grandfather didn't make it out of the revolution alive and leaving my grandmother and six kids. And uh, as she told my father and all uh, one night, says, we have no future in Mexico. Uh, he says, we're going to the Estados Unidos. Hmm. Uh, she says, but I want my children to be able to walk down the street with their heads held high, their eyes looking forward and not over their shoulders. We will enter the country legally. And so over a period of seven years, the family migrated. And uh, at the low point of the Depression, my father had only 25 cents to his name, learning uh, English. His first two words were apple pie. Actually, his first phrase was apple pie and coffee. <laughs> and uh, he carried the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution on his body every day of his life. And wow. when my f a brother and I would get out of line, he would sit us down at the kitchen table, take out this little buff colored book and shake it in our face. He says, don't lose your country like I lost mine. This is the one thing that is protecting you. So he quizzed us on the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence wow. starting at the age of five. And it has served me well throughout my entire life, I think back. But yes, had we moved assets out, it would have been easier. Uh, Pop wasn't around to see me become professionally successful. But I talked to him and I said, Pops, it only took us one generation to get back in the chips. Don't let <laughs> Bastards keep you down. <laughs> and so, uh, uh, yeah, this is a phenomenal country. Uh, I thank God every day that we were able to move here. And he quizzed us on the Constitution throughout our upbringing. Mm. And so we, uh, it was a good foundation. It's, it's I, amazing that you, you were a constitutional scholar and using a bandsaw at the age of five. That's, <laughs> <laughs> That's quite some combination. <laughs> he was precocious, always. Yeah, right. no kidding. Also, also a, uh, uh, what taught me about money was uh, coin collecting. And 
to be a, a good coin collector going to conventions, uh, if you had to take out uh, uh, information about something, then everybody could look at it. So I would commit uh, reams of uh, conditions, values, and all so that you would be in there. So my mom drove me to my first uh, coin convention when I was uh, seven years old. And she would sit there. She didn't want to do that the next year. So four bus transfers, I made it to the convention at eight years old. And I'm negotiating with people. It's a wonderful field because uh, whether you're old or young or in between, you're dealing with something that uh, everybody appreciates. And it taught me about history. It taught me about negotiating. It taught me about how you gain information. And the best thing it taught me was uh, at 10 years old, uh, one of our school projects was we had to write uh, a way to someone that wasn't a family or friend to get something. And I had not a clue, so I went to the librarian, and she asked me, well, what are your interests? I said, well, I'm a coin collector. Well, she takes out this book, and it's a little book, and it says, the Federal Reserve of the United States. She says, well, this one... Uh, organization at all has something to do with money in the United States. So I got the book. I opened it up the page. I looked in it. In the first page, it was greetings. And there was this welcoming. And at the bottom, there was a name. And it was William McChesney Martin, chairman of the Federal Reserve. I said, I'll write to him. <laughs> so I wrote to Chairman Martin. And three weeks later, I get a pack no. back a big uh, package and on the label it says mr. Robert L Rodriguez <laughs> and my mom said to me he said when did you become a mister I, I don't know and I open it up and there's a letter to dear mr. Rodriguez and it's talking about uh, I am now a subscriber to the Federal Reserve Bulletin I've got all this other information and I said I would like to personally thank you for the interest in the Federal Reserve, sincerely, William McChesney Martin. Wow. And with that, it was, shall we say, uh, a beginning of a love affair with money. And, and I looked at the stock market. I said, God, that's the greatest casino in the world. And it's just been a phenomenal period. But this period is dangerous. And I yeah. just feel so sorry for what it's going to do uh, to uh, young people. Well, yeah whether it's on their finances or on their, uh, even more dangerous, uh, their political rights. Do, do you yeah. think having that appreciation, not, not just for, for sound money, but also history and the Constitution of the United States, for example, it, they seem to be, that combination seems to be sorely lacking today. And, well, and that's, that was the advice I got from Charlie Munger. Yeah, right. And Charlie, I asked him if I could do one thing myself a better investment professional what would you recommend he said read history read history read history yeah. whether it's political economic uh, those who do not read history are condemned to repeat it again in the future mm -hmm. it's a wise saying uh, and so I thought better become a uh, historian uh, Stephanie does a wonderful job and has perspective in this area that so few people have. Uh, I can talk to a number of money managers or analysts, and they can tell you about 
price earnings ratios and all of these other things. But when I try to get them into a perspective on history and money, their background is sorely lacking. And uh, when uh, we were going through the, uh, I remember this with, uh, with Larry Kudlow when he was still on CNBC and Larry and I had a falling out and, uh, and when I was walking out of uh, the CNBC studios in 09 as a farewell, uh, he was standing out there and he says, Bob, how can I get you back on the show? I said, Larry, I'm, I'm uh, retiring from the money management area, but uh, anyway, I'm just back here. I said, I'm on a, a tour to talk about what's going on. He says, well, what's going on? I said, well, this is 09. I said, well, I'm going, here's my topic uh, I'm going out to talk about. And that is that if you wanted to see what we're going through, all you had to do was go back to the 1907 banking crisis. And he's sitting there going, you're right. I said, I studied the 07 banking crisis when I was in college because everybody was studying the depression. Yeah. And I asked this question, if we didn't have a depression, of 1929-32, what would we have studied? It would have been the 1907 banking crisis. So if you look at 2007 and 1907, there were so many similarities there. So I said, if you don't read history, you condemn to repeat it again in the future. It doesn't repeat, but it does rhyme. And I think that was one of the soundest pieces of advice I could have gotten from a gentleman who looked very old to me at the time when he was in his <laughs> I was going to say, Bob, you look exactly the same. You don't age. Are you still driving oh, a race car? That. I need to hear about your race car driving exploits these days. Have you retired from that or are you still active? Well, I've been using tough love on my mechanic. Uh, I believe in the golden rule. He who has the gold makes the rules. And <laughs> golden rule. And uh, I've been trying to get him to sell a couple of race cars uh, for me. They're rare. And with that, I said, I'll give you 15% of the gross proceeds. Notice I said gross. Right. And, <laughs> and then I'll take the other 85%. I'll put them into an account and we'll go out and play. Well, he's been a little bit, uh, shall we say, sluggish on that. So I said, so long, long as these cars are not sold, I will not race. So I haven't raced for about two and a half years, uh, but I know I can get into a car today. Uh, I have different ways of measuring, uh, uh, shall we say, strength, uh, agility, and all. And I haven't lost a step yet, almost at 72. Amazing. And, uh, You're just do... a daredevil. I love it. <laughs> in every way, in your investment career, in your hobbies, I mean, it's well, I really you, fantastic. Well, you remember, uh, you remember uh, uh, the Wall Street Week. Of and, course, yeah, yeah. And who was he? Louis Rukeyser. Right. You got him. So anyway, uh, Lou would always uh, want to ask the last question. And so one year, it was 1996, and uh, uh, there's Wall Street Week on him. Wife Sue says, how come you're not on that? And I said, well, I've been asked, but every time 
they asked me, I have a conflict. Like I was just recently asked uh, to come on, but uh, the airing would be on your birthday. So I turned him down. She said, no, go. So I go back to Owens Mills, Maryland. And as we go on, I made it a requirement that I uh, got on camera. And I said, happy birthday, Sue, from Owens Mills, Maryland. And so uh, the last question comes. And Lou says, you purport to be a value manager. And value managers are this conservative, risk-averse lot. How do you square your hobby with how you invest? <laughs> and, uh, you know, and I said, Lou, I'm so glad you asked me that question. <laughs> race driving has so many similarities to what we do. In racing, in the theory of attacking the turn, you have to balance risk and return. If you attack the turn too quickly and go in too soon, you can't make the turn you go off track and you pay a very high price, both financially or bodily. <laughs> On the other hand, if you enter the turn too conservatively, then you exit too slowly and you lose the advantage. Therefore, in attacking the turn, you must balance risk and return. With that, the camera goes off. Oh, I love it. Ah, oh, Kaiser looks at me and <laughs> says, I knew you were full of shit. <laughs> <laughs> I said, where in the hell did you drag that? I thought oh I had God, you. And I said, amazing. Lou, I'm so glad you asked me that. And I opened my briefcase and on the flight out, I was reading a book, Techniques of Race Driving, by Vic Elford, one of the top racers of Porsche back in the late 1950s and early 1960s. And there's a chapter in there, The Theory of Attacking the Turn. <laughs> and in the first two sentences, it says, to successfully attack the turn, you must balance risk and return. And with that, I see, Lou, you never know where you're going to get sound investment advice. <laughs> you have to have your eyes and ears oh, open. So I just thought that was great. He, he, he said that was probably one of the greatest all-time comebacks he had ever yeah. had. Oh, I love it. Uh, I'm going to have to search for that video somewhere. It's got to right? be out it there must be somewhere. There. YouTube must have it somewhere. Oh, I love it. Well, thank you, Bob. It's Bob, great. thank you to see you or talk to you. <laughs> uh, You've been all very generous letting me ramble on. Uh, oh, as I, you kidding oh, me? Please. This has been so much fun. I've, I've enjoyed every single minute of it. Thank you so much. Amazing. Bye-bye, guys. All right, Bob, take care. lady. Bye-bye. <laughs> Love it. See ya. Oh, by the way, I intend to be coming back to New York, so you have to keep a date out. Don't you tease me. No, I will. But, you know, I figure uh, when the restaurants start to open, Okay. I'll, I'll be your ear on the ground. Okay. I'll check it out. Yeah. Check it on. Let me know. I will. Okay? Thank you. All Bob. right. Thanks again, Bob. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. <laughs> well, Steph, I, you, you know how long I've been wanting to speak to Bob and I know how much you said I was going to enjoy it, but you weren't even close. Uh, I know. He's just, I literally could talk to him all day. He's, you never stop learning things about Bob. 
Yeah. I learned a bunch that I didn't know before just from talking to him today. So thank you for. Well, it's just it's just an amazing story, right? The the the, the story of his grandparents and his parents. I mean, it's just. I mean that. It's funny. I listened to that, and that is what. As a kid, I always imagined America to be right. It was it was that place where you could come there with nothing from anywhere and and make it. And and you know, I fell in love with the United States when I was an eleven year old kid and went there for the first time. And and it, it saddens me that you just it doesn't feel that way. Not at all. For some Quite reason. the contrary. I mean, it feels like people really take for granted the freedoms that we have here and how special a country it is. Yeah. Um, Again, you know, it just feels like a bull market phenomenon in a way. When times yeah. are good, you just take these things for granted. Um, and I guess maybe one of the benefits of what we're going through now is that maybe we'll see a shift in that attitude and a little more appreciation. Well, maybe. So. I like. I that's always so. like to keep it optimistic. You know me. So. Yeah, yeah of course. Of course. Well, I mean, you know, it's uh, the, the 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 stories about the you, you 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 listen to someone like like Bob, and it it's it's such a he seems like such a throwback to me, but but to an era that is not that far distant, but seems to be totally gone. It's, you know what I mean? It, it's it's just weird that he retired a decade ago, and yet he seems almost anachronistic. In his yes. viewpoints, because the world's changed so it, much and for the worse in those yeah, days. Yeah, things really have moved so quickly. Um, and the period we're going through right now, it's like we just push the accelerator straight to the floor. Um, yeah. And, you know, as he said, in just a span of eight weeks, um, the whole outlook has changed so dramatically. And, yeah. you know, whether we can ever get back to some semblance of where we were before is really an open question. Um, well, it gives us plenty yes. to discuss on the super terrific happy. Hour. I thought you'd so like that, that segue, right? <laughs> yeah, nicely done. Well, look, I guess I guess we should wrap it up, even though I could uh, sit and chat all day. But I guess we should really wrap this up. I mean, all that remains to do is is thank people for listening. Oh, I would I would urge you to seek out um, Bob's piece, Crossing the Rubicon. You'll find it if you Google it um, online. And there's there's a fantastic um, interview that he did with Think uh, Advisor. I think was, Think yeah. Advisor, right? Yeah, Think yeah. Advisor. Uh, basically, anything you can find that was written by Bob or interviewed with Bob, you will learn a ton from it. I have over the years, so I, this was a real thrill for me to meet him. So, Seth, thanks for thanks for setting oh, that up. It's my pleasure. Thank you to you for listening to us. Um, Are we up to eleven please, listeners now? We were. At, I, think, I think. I think we cracked double figures. <laughs> All right. We, we cracked double figures, which is uh, which is cause for celebration. Um, so follow us uh, on Twitter. You'll find us at sth hour. Uh, you can follow me at ttmygh and me at s. Palm boy. Yes, Palm boy. Yes. Uh, what do you say we do this again sometimes, Steph? Irregularly. That, that sounds good. <laughs> All right. All right. I'll see you Bye. soon. Bye.